And good morning to all of you. It's a privilege and honor to be able to stand here and exposit the Word of God and to see uh, the incredible maturity and growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ that uh, I witnessed through this body. So welcome to you all. If you're visiting here, we certainly want to welcome you and inform you that we are in a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And this morning we're, we will focus on verses 15 to 21. Last week we studied the feeding of the 5,000. It's 5,000 men. Certainly Jesus would have fed upward of 15 to 20,000 plus there on that day, including women and children. What I want to do is read the text. I'm going to do a little review, if you will, kind of set the stage here, and then we'll get into breaking down this glorious, wonderful, wonderful passage of Scripture. Let's begin in verse 15. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, He departed again to the mountain by Himself alone. Now when evening came, His disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. Then the sea arose because of a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid. But He said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they willingly received Him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that You would open our eyes this morning, our spiritual eyes, open our ears to hear the glorious truth of Scripture this morning, the Word in which You have exalted to that of Your own name. And I pray that those who are in Christ this morning would be greatly edified, encouraged, according to the Scriptures. And again, if anyone here is lost this morning, who does not have a true saving relationship with you, we ask that you would bring them out of deadness. Open their eyes that they may see, receive, and understand your glorious gospel truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, last time we studied the Lord ministering in abundant grace to the great multitude of the hungry. The disciples, the Lord's disciples, obediently had the masses sit down in numbers of 50 and hundreds and he distributed the miracle which came through his hands into the hands of his disciples and they dispersed it to the people. The masses although had no true appreciation for the words of Christ or the works of Christ that pointed to the person of Christ. They had been attracted simply by idle curiosity and a love for sensationalism. Verse 2 tells us that they saw His signs which He performed on those who were deceased. Nevertheless, Jesus in affectionate sympathy miraculously supplied their need by supplying and multiplying Five loaves and two fish 
These were barley loaves, very small. These fish were not great walleye. These were little pickled fish. And you would either place them on this cracker-like wafer or bread or you would spread them as a spread to help the bread go down a little easier. So it was very small in portion. And the Lord miraculously supplied to all to where there were 12 baskets left over supplying the need certainly for the disciples in their ongoing ministry. So the effect here was not belief, but as we will see next time, next week, it was only a desire to be fed more. Christ had revealed His divine power. There was no argument about that. No one ever denied the fact that Jesus Christ performed mighty signs and miracles, ever. The religious hypocrites of the day never refuted the fact that He was a miracle worker. But they did attempt to attribute the miraculous power of Christ to that of Beelzebub, to that of Satan. When they saw this miracle, John 6.14 says, Then those men, when they had seen the sign which Jesus said, said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Now that title, the prophet, was referred to back in John chapter 1, verse 21. And it's a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15. We read that through Moses, God declared that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Now these Jews, these masses, were on the surface undeniably ready to receive Jesus as their Messiah. This was outward. Because they had refused to recognize the honor and worship that was due to him as that prophet whom Moses said would come. Who is indeed the very Son of God incarnate. God in the flesh that stood before them that was performing the signs. A sign miracle always points to something greater than itself. The substance of the person performing the sign. The Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But rather than falling down before Him, like Isaiah fell down in the presence of God as an undone sinner, rather than crying out for mercy, instead of falling down at His feet in reverent worship, rather than embracing Him as the Holy One worthy of all worship, they simply desired to take Him by force to make Him King. As verse 15 declares. And this no doubt was for their own end thinking that he would lead them in a successful revolt against Rome and provide for their every impulsive desire. Who would not want free Medicare, Medicare and food? Anyone will follow Messiah like that, amen? That's an easy Savior to follow. But their words and intentions were void of any form of genuine adoration. There was no conviction of sin. There was no stirring of the conscience. They were blind to the light that came in to the world. Had their hearts been opened, the light would have shone in, would have revealed their wretchedness, their sin, their need as lost, needy sinners in desperate need of a soul savior. And if you consider my assessment to be a bit convoluted, we'll see that chapter 6 is the major dividing line of the Lord's public ministry. 
This is the watershed moment of departure. The peak of separation. We'll see in the weeks to come that these very masses went out from him and walked with him no more. And there was a small group that followed him as he set his face as a flint towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. The very purpose in which he came to earth. You know, there's many nowadays who simply regard Jesus as a great prophet, you know, a wonderful teacher, a great teacher of morality and ethics. Jesus, one of many great prophets, Jesus, one of many religious leaders, Jesus is one of the spokes that lead to the hub of God. So long as you're sincere in what you believe, you'll get there. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus Christ is the only shelter from the wrath of God which is to come. We must never be misled, ever, by the outward honoring of Christ by those who praise His ethical teachings all the while despising His cross. Denying Him is the only way to heaven. These superficial followers here in John 6 will be made obvious next week. They simply viewed Christ as a royal genie. One who would grant them liberty from governmental oppression and worldly gain. They were thrill seekers who wanted to make the most of Jesus for their own good. Today the majority of people declare that they believe in God. Most people you know will say they believe in God, amen? They certainly will. Just ask around. But that claim is much too vague. To say, I believe in God, could mean anything, anyone, or any way. You have to probe a bit. You have to dig in a little bit. We live in a relativistic society. What's true for you may be true for you, but it's not true for me. There are no absolute moral standards. But when you watch CNN long enough, and some child is on the front page of the news who's been molested, violated, murdered. People of all groups will pound their fist and they will declare that that act is evil. And it is evil because there's a standard of holiness. And that's an absolute truth that that's evil because the Word of God absolutely says that it's evil. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to me except through the Father. That statement is the absolute of all absolutes. And this mob wanted Jesus simply for selfish gain. Jesus read their mind. He knew their plan to make Him king. But Jesus never commits Himself to false disciples. Or the thrill seeker. This group is one that cries out, Give me what I want without any demands. Jesus, my friend, my comrade, my homeboy. Jesus is nobody's homeboy. He doesn't commit himself to thrill seekers. Jesus comes to no man on their terms. Anyone comes to Christ, they come on his terms. 
And they're only able to come by His divine intervening work. Period. As you recall, the masses were pressing in on Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 says that His fame went out throughout all the land. He was expelling disease from all of Galilee. And His fame went out. He goes on to feed upward of fifteen to 20,000 people here. He tests the faith of His disciples, inquiring of them, where are we going to get food to feed these masses, these multitudes? Where are we going to get it, boys? He knew exactly what He was going to do. He's testing their faith. Or 200 denarii worth is not enough to feed these multitudes. Just a little bit. But then they bring a young boy, a young lad, who had five loaves and two fishes. They didn't know. They had doubts. But then Jesus simply commands them, have them sit down. You know what they did? They obeyed. They had them sit down in groups of fifties, groups of hundreds. Jesus multiplies the bread, He multiplies the fish, and they distribute as commanded. And then after this great miracle, verse 15, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take Him by force to make Him king, He departed again to the mountain by Himself alone. Now, Jesus knew at this point, considering His popularity, that His disciples were in danger. Think about this for a moment. The crowd had moved to make Him king. You know, the temptation for the disciples at this point would have been to rejoice in the opportunity to become famous and powerful. They could have easily become involved in the carnal enthusiasm of this crowd. Very easy to fall into this. They could have been easily stirred up with the temporary, keyword, temporary fanfare of Jesus Christ. Living through the popularity of another, getting caught up as part of an entourage, can be very deceiving. Very deceiving. I've seen this happen to fans who are able to associate with their favorite celebrity. Big time stars. And if they hang around long enough and they're able to rub elbows for any more than just a meet and greet, like an hour, if they have some privilege to be able to hang out with the celebrity for some time, they all of a sudden think they're best friends now, you see. They become romanticized by the vicarious fanfare that's being experienced through another. This fanfare was superficial. Jesus wanted to protect them from this. He's never moved by the crowds. Jesus isn't moved by superficial, surfacy fanfare. These were fans. Remember, fan is short for fanatic. Fanatical. If you have someone up in the secular world on a pedestal, you're a fanatic. An idolater. Repent. If you profess Christ and bow before the King of Kings. If you're not saved, you must repent just because you're a sinner and you have no ability to worship God outside of His grace. And I pray that His Word will open your eyes today. So Jesus was rescuing these disciples from a greater danger here. The danger of being swept along by this fanatical crowd. So Jesus sends His disciples in a boat across the lake. He says, go to the other side. Now as we read through the Gospels, again, we see that Jesus is never impressed by big crowds. 
Many churches today think they're doing effective ministry because they have large crowds. If they're not proclaiming the truth of Scripture in, in expounding the truth as revealed through Scripture, John Calvin said they're not a church. Preaching repentance. Here's the Scripture. This is what it says. This is what it means by what it says. This is how you apply it to your life. You know, in Jesus' day, Rome had a prescription for keeping people happy. They would set apart 93 days of year, 93 days a year for games and entertainment to keep the people happy, to keep them satisfied. And this would all be done at the expense of the government. Now, they thought it was much easier and cheaper to entertain the crowds than to resist them or jail them. Give them food and entertainment. Keep them quiet, keep their lips zipped, and keep them happy. We'll just inundate them with information. We'll just inundate them with, with uh, entertainment. This is precisely what the superficial followers of Jesus Christ desired. This is what they wanted. This is what they still want today. And this is what most churches, unfortunately, especially in America, provide today. Not all, many. I'll go as far as to say most. If you're from out of town and you're looking for a church, you know it's very, very difficult to find a biblically sound church. Can I get an amen, brothers and sisters? That's a true statement. Search around. Never ever be deceived by the popularity of Jesus Christ among certain circles. Very few people want Jesus Christ as Savior. Very few want Him as Lord, but many desire Him as healer and provider. The one who will rescue them from their problems, the problems that they've created for themselves. Because they love their sin, they love carnality, they love the world, and then Jesus becomes an escape hatch as soon as they are, are painted into a corner, you see. They're, concer- they're not concerned about the condition of their soul. They're, con- they're concerned about the comforts of life. Jesus said in John 5, verse 40, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. On the other hand, those who do come to him have been granted eternal life and abundant life now. John 6, 37, Jesus said, all that the Father gives me. Guess what they're going to do? They will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So now there's a point of transition here. We're going to kind of... There's kind of a break now from the, the masses who will be revealed, beginning in verse 22, as false disciples. And we, we take a break now and transition from these false disciples to true disciples. The twelve. One of which was Judas, who was a fraud which just goes to show you that some people can fake it all the way to the end. Jesus warned that there will be, and always will be, tares among the wheat. And they won't be revealed until the sickle of harvest is brought out. Till judgment comes, and he separates the sheep from the goats. Judas faked it, but Jesus loved him all the way to the end. So the point of focus this morning is, True disciples of Jesus Christ and their stormy trial. True disciples of Jesus Christ and their stormy trial. 
Jesus will address the false mob next time. But in verses 16 to 21 contain the sequel to the feeding of the 5,000 described for us in verses 1 through 13. And here we have a continuation of testing for the genuine disciples, the true followers of Jesus Christ. This is a testing miracle. It occurs in the dark, on the water. And it's for His disciples only to experience. No one else bore witness of those, of this event, other than His disciples. Today we will look at the test of faith for the faithful. The test of faith for true disciples. Next time we will see the exposed desires of the faithless. Now the faith of Christ's true disciples will eventually be revealed and strengthened according to His sovereign will for all who are in Christ. You will be put to the test. You and I will be put through trials. There is no getting around that at all. Amen? We will not get around that. This is for our growth. This is for His glory more than anything else. It's for the glory of God. So the points of focus in our study this morning reveal for us that the leading of Christ will eventually direct the believer into the following circumstances and they're outlined in your bulletin. Number one, the true child of God will be led into the dark. Second point, they will be led into turbulent storms. Point number three, again, they're in your bulletin, they will be led into the eleventh hour of uncertainty. Leading us into a greater presence of Christ. And finally, the last point, those things lead us into a more confident trust and deeper worship of Christ. A more confident trust and deeper worship of Christ. Point number one. Here we see a command from Christ to proceed into the dark. Verse 16 and 17. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, went over the sea towards Capernaum, and it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Now Matthew's account of this event, Matthew 14, Mark's account of this event, chapter 6, verse 45, tell us that Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. So he sends his disciples, he tells them, get into the boat, he implores them, he makes them go. And then he sends off the multitudes, okay? He actually says, he bids them farewell. Now the word made, in Mark's account, could also be translated compelled. To compel by force or persuasion. So this reveals for us that it's very likely that the disciples did not want to go without him. He compels them. He makes them get out, get in, go. Go to the other side. Matthew 14, 23 also informs us that Jesus went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He goes off to pray. Now, we will this morning compare Matthew 14, Mark chapter 6, along with John 6, in order to acquire the full picture of this awesome, awesome event. So I'll be referencing all three of those Gospels. But here it is, it was evening. Now, in Jewish thinking, there were two evenings. One, the first evening, was from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. First evening. The second evening was 6 p.m. until dark. Now, they obediently got into the boat at the second evening to take a five-mile, simple little five-mile trek 
across the lake, the Sea of Galilee, to Capernaum. These are fishermen. They've been in boats many, many times from childhood. They knew what they were doing. Now darkness had already fallen before they actually began to cross the lake. Jesus had not come with them. And this may imply that they somewhat expected Him to show up. They waited through the second evening. He had not come. It was already dark. Jesus had not come to them, so they, okay, He's not coming, let's go. Perhaps waiting until the last minute. Obviously hoping that He would come. Now, it's important to note here, one characteristic of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is this, it's obedience. A true characteristic of Christ is obedience. They got in the boat and they left. You'll find out next time that the masses who he commanded to go away, they didn't go away. They remained. We'll see why next time. Make sure you come back next week. So here's the first great factor of the story. Jesus had sent them across the lake by boat knowing full well what was going to happen. And they obediently follow his instruction. Why? Because they're disciples of Christ. Now, did Jesus know that this tumultuous storm was coming? Of course. Of course He did. Well, then why did He deliberately send His loving friends into danger? One reason, as stated earlier, was to keep them from being swept along by this fanatical crowd. But there's another reason. Another reason for this storm. And that is, in order to grow into the image of Christ, the Lord has to balance our lives, doesn't He? Without which we'll become proud. You know how, you know the potential for pride here of being associated with Jesus Christ as one of the twelve and seeing and partaking in these great miracles? As his fame went out throughout the land, you know how deceiving that can be? I don't know if I said this this service or not, but people I know who've been able to associate with their favorite celebrity, I have friends who are at that level and I've seen people just wig and trip out from being around all of that nonsense, all the hoopla. You become like a crazed maniac. You're waiting for this, the next great thing to happen, you know, and then you start walking around like you think you're something. You become proud. I mean... The disciples had just experienced great joy in being part of this breathtaking miracle of Jesus multiplying bread and fish. This ha happened just hours prior to this. So the, the feeding of the 5,000 was a lesson. This storm was the exam subsequent to the lesson. The feeding was the lesson. The storm is the exam. Tor the storm takes place at night in the absence of Jesus. A.B. Bruce writes, and I quote, Storms at sea may happen at all hours of the day, but trials of faith always happen in the night. End quote. If there's no darkness, there'd be no trial. So they had to proceed now in the dark in order to learn to trust the Lord more, in order to be, here it is, refined to be refined. You know, we can become very self-confident and very prideful, can't we? It's very easy for any human being to become prideful and self-confident. But Christ says, 
If you're mine, I will conform you to my image. James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of an oriental silversmith working these great bazaars in the Near East. And he describes this silversmith as one who still works in a primitive manner. He works over a small furnace and over which sits this little pot containing molten silver. Boyce goes on to say, and I quote, Every so often the silversmith goes over the pot of silver, looks into it, scrapes off a bit of that dross that is collected, and then he returns to his work. After a while, he looks in, finds that the silver is all ready, and begins to form it. Some of the onlookers inquire, asking, Why do you constantly look into the silver? The silversmith would answer, I look into the silver until I can until I find that the dross is all gone and the silver purified. I know when the dross is gone because I can see myself reflected in the silver as in a fine mirror. End quote. I mean, that's simply an illustration of the, that beautiful passage in Malachi, chapter 3, verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Not superficial worship. Not some outward sacrifice. But from the heart. Birthed out of righteousness. He works the salvation in. We're called to work it out. You don't work in salvation. And you can't work out what he hasn't worked in. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That can only be done if he's already worked it in by grace alone. Christians will frequently be called, they will be called, we will be called, you will be called to go through trials and testings in life. God's desire is to make you like Jesus Christ, more like his son. And he does so by working out the dross of our lives. Now dross in metal is impure waste. It's foreign matter. The foreign matter has to, be, has to rise to the top so you can scrape it off and then you have pure molten metal. Free of impurities. Dross in regard to our lives are those things that are base. Trivial. Inferior to the things of Christ. And He will guarantee you he will work them out if you are in Christ. He will work them out. And He will continue to work them out. As soon as you think you have no dross in your life, as soon as I think that I can stand up in the next level and say I have no dross, oh, down we will go. Amen? It's His glory that's the issue here. It's not our sanctification. It's the glory of God. Salvation. I've said it a million times. Salvation, the ultimate goal of salvation is, that, is not that man be restored to relationship with God. The ultimate goal of salvation is the glory of God. That's the end. The means of which? Us, sinners, saved by grace. That's the means to that end. Sanctified, working out the righteousness that He's worked in. So in order to accomplish His goal in and through our lives, he, can, he may command us to get into a boat and to go while it's already dark and Jesus doesn't seem to be around. Doesn't seem to be around. Remember Hebrews chapter 11? Abraham? 
Verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. He never saw the city. He never saw the promised land. He's the forefather. He's the father of faith. He, he, he's who Israel looked to. He's their hero of faith. He went out. He had no idea where he was going, but he went out. God graced him and enabled him to go. And he went. So at this point, back to the disciples, we realize there's this problem. It's dark. We can't see the shore. Jesus doesn't seem to be around. But just when we get the boat moving, here we are, we get out by faith, okay, I'm going to go, Lord. We start rowing. We start rowing. we got our brother next to us. we got our sister next to us. We're rowing. We're going. We're moving. We're grooving. And then just like these experienced, by the way, fishermen, experienced, this is not the first time these brothers have gotten into a boat at night. Amen? As soon as you get going, something far beyond our control hits us. And that's point number two. He moves us into turbulent storms. Verse 18. And then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. Okay, this is a windstorm. There's no reason for us to think that the big rain clouds came in and it's storming all right. This, this is definitely a windstorm. It could have been rain. It just says there's a storm. And it, it was produced by wind. Now the Sea of Galilee sits six to 700 feet below sea level. It's kind of like a... a a saucer-like depression. And it's surrounded by these hills, these uh, regions of hills that exceed upward of 2,000 feet above the Sea of Galilee. So, when the sun sets, the air cools, and the cool air rushes down, and it displaces the moist air over the lake, and in turn it churns up this water, and these massive gale winds just stir up and start whipping up. Some massive storms take place on this little lake. And here they are. Since the disciples now are rowing towards Capernaum, well on their way, this gale wind batters them head on. Head on. And as a result, they make very little progress. Matthew tells us in chapter 14, verse 24, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, spiritually speaking, there are two ways to get into storms. Okay? One is because of disobedience to the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he, he disciplines. Let me tell you what. If you are a sinner saved by grace, you're redeemed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit, you have everlasting life. And because you have everlasting life, while you're here on this earth, He's going to conform you to His image. And if you willfully resist His commanded will, He will get your attention. Amen. Come on now, somebody. He will. It's disobedience. When you flee or resist the commanded will of God, just like Jonah, He will prepare a fish if He has to. He commanded Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. He hates the Ninevites, so He goes in the opposite direction, gets on a ship and heads the other way. Amen? God whips up a storm. There's a bunch of pagan sailors on there. He says, somebody has ticked God off. Let's draw straws. Let's find out what's going on here. It's Jonah. It's me. 
it's me. Throw me overboard. Okay, that's a good idea. <laughs> so they throw him overboard. God prepared a great fish to swallow him. He vomits him up on shore, and he goes and he does what God commanded him to do. Didn't he? Disobedience. There's one way to have storms in your life. But there are other times that storms come because we've obeyed the Lord. So now you're thinking, well, we can't win for losing. They come if we disobey, and they come if we obey. Amen? Okay? They come because we're there. This is the case with the disciples. They were in the midst of the storm because they obeyed Christ. They obeyed Christ. You know, perhaps they concluded as they're out there, you know, man, Jesus, He made a mistake. You know, He sent us out here, but this, this, He didn't know this was going on. Anyone who's a true follower of Jesus Christ and you give Him allegiance, you will face contrary winds in life. Period. End of story. You want to be a true follower of Jesus Christ and give Him the reverence that is due to Him and Him alone and live a life that represents and reflects the power and the glory and the goodness of God, you will face opposition. Moses would never have felt rejection to a million or two or so of these Israelites that he, that he led around in the wilderness for 40 years had he not obeyed the voice of God through the burning bush. Daniel would not have faced a lion's den had he not shown allegiance to God. Nor would Paul have found himself a bloodied victim in a Roman prison when he obediently went to Macedonia. In Acts chapter 16, verses 9, 10, and 24 says, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. He goes on to say, Concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. The result? The magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Verse 25, Paul and Silas, they're locked up, they're in stocks, they've been beaten. They start praying and singing hymns. A testimony to all the other prisoners in the prison. All the other inmates. Testimony. Servants of the Most High. So sometimes this is the price of obedience. Turbulent storms occur. We will trust in His sovereign will and that He intercedes for us. He intercedes on our behalf. Who's the hour? Those who are truly in Christ. It doesn't say He intercedes on behalf of the masses who are superficial believers, false disciples. We're talking about true disciples. True children of God. We trust. You know, many Christians are simply, they simply remain spineless, self-centered, loving the world, walking in continual disobedience. God chastens, He chastens, He chastens, and they just keep falling into the same pit of despair. Disobedience. So when Jesus sends them off in the boat, they have no idea why He sent them away. He also sent away the mob. One group obeys, small group. The other group doesn't. Such is the case today. God has a small group of true believers. 
Jesus, Jesus said in the last day, many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. They're going to claim to know him, but he's going to say, I never knew you. I quote that a lot because it frightens me. Not for my own sake, but for the many I know who profess Christ, who in no way bear fruit of being Christ's. Therefore we preach it, preach it, preach it. So, cost though, cost is not the question here. Obedience is. And obedience in this case leads to this great miraculous event of Jesus Christ in the lives of these disciples. Now sometimes in the midst of tribulation, sometimes in the midst of great storms, of which we will all partake of, He seemingly holds off until the last minute. Amen? If you've been walking with Christ for any period of time, you know that He never comes a minute too soon, does He? And that leads us to point number three. He leads us into the eleventh hour of uncertainty. The 11th hour of uncertainty. Verse 19a. They had rowed about three or four miles. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 47 and 48 says, The boat was in the middle of the sea. He was alone on the land. Now check this out. Then he saw them straining at rowing. For the wind was against them. He's up praying and he sees them fighting the wind and the waves. Jesus has been up on the mountain in prayer. Now Jesus always exemplified the importance of prayer and He taught His disciples the importance of prayer. Prayer is of essential importance. John Piper says regarding prayer, and I quote, Prayer corresponds with two great purposes of God that Jesus came to accomplish. Number one is God's glory. Number two, our joy. End quote. Jesus said in John 14, 13, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Prayer is designed by God to display His fullness. His fullness in our need. Piper goes on to say, quote, Prayer glorifies God because it puts us in the position of the thirsty and God in the position of the all-supplying fountain. Supplier, recipient. Prayer is designed as a way of relating to God so that it is clear. We get the help, He gets the glory. End quote. I mean, this is the heart of God as spoken to the psalmist, Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. The fact that God brings you and leads you into darkness, He leads you into trials, He lives, leads you into storms, He will come and rescue you as we will see. And in the end, He gets the glory. No one else can get the glory. When He shows up at the eleventh hour, only He can get the glory. Now, this does not imply that prayer is only for the sake of asking. It should be interwoven with thanksgiving, praise, and confession. Amen? Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, make your request be made known to God. With what? With thanksgiving. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Thankfulness. Praising Him. And confession. Continually confessing our sin. 
that's just right up here between your ears and my ears. So God is intimately aware of their condition. He's intimately aware of your condition. And having rode all night, they rode all night. They only went three or four miles. Striving against waves, against wind, against fatigue. Yet the Lord was intimately aware of exactly what was going on. Mark 6.48 tells us that it was about the fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch. That was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. was the fourth watch. So they'd been at it all night. If they started at dusk or at dark after the second um, evening, they had been rowing for upward of like 8-10 hours. Fighting against this storm. They rowed hard. Three or four miles. Sunset to almost daybreak. This is the eleventh hour despair. What is going on? You know, oftentimes we'll feel that we're doing the work of the Lord. You know, here I am serving God. Why isn't He helping me? Where is He? I'm doing His work. I'm doing it for His glory. Where's the strength? Right? still breathing right you know sometimes you know God tells us to do something and he allows it to be hard as we do it and just when you think you can take no more moving in the about in the dark Jesus doesn't seem to be around to be thrown about by turbulent winds and in waves and then finally, here you are at the 11th hour. You're ready to throw your hands up. Everything seems impossible. Jesus shows up in a way that you would never have imagined in your life. Mark 6.48 says, Now about the fourth watch of the night, He came to them. He came to them. Point number four, He leads us into the presence of Christ. Into the presence of of Christ. Verse 19b and 20. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Have you ever been at the 11th hour despair? Looking down the barrel of hopelessness. Double barrel. Shotgun. Of hopelessness. The revolver, revolver of despair. It's facing you. It's right there at your temple. Where is he? Jesus shows up. You know, he makes himself more real to us in times of sorrow and assures us at that time that we need not be afraid. We need not fear. I mean, he's defying the law of gravity here. He's walking on the water, as only God can, by the way. Another picture of his deity. Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6 says, For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In order that, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? What can this trial do to me? What can this storm do to me? This is his promise. Now, we're never going to know this side of eternity, brothers and sisters, why he waits until the last hour. When the waves are rolling, the wind is blowing, it's dark, you can't see a thing. 
The point is, he's been up on a mountain praying. And then right at the right time, he acts. And he comes to his own. He's omnipotent, brothers and sisters. That means he's all-powerful. Amen? He's all-powerful. He's in control. And omnipotence, here it is, omnipotence is never in a hurry. Omnipotence is never in a hurry. Because the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful work of God, is always that which is in control. He's sovereign. He's in control. So Jesus comes just at the right moment, even if the right moment is the last minute. The eleventh hour. And for some, you know what? For some, that's the only time they'll listen. For some, the eleventh hour is the only time that they cry out to Christ, the one they so boldly profess. It's the only time they talk to Him. It's the only time they seek His face. And these storms of life come disturbing our little vulnerable boats. Our, our, our hearts are finally ready now to receive the presence of Christ, Right? So Jesus comes to them. Now, they had never been out of his sight, although he was out of their sight. They were never out of his sight. He knew exactly what was going down. He was looking upon them, looking over them. He saw the storm. He sees the despair. And whether he walked down the hill and then onto the water, or whether he just supernaturally appeared at the shoreline and then walked out on the water, we'll never know. But the point is, he went to them. He went out to them. But notice, it doesn't say that these disciples were fearful of the storm. It says when they saw him, they were afraid. They had no expectation that Jesus would come to their rescue, certainly like this. So when he appeared, their superstitious terror rised up. They thought they saw some type of seafaring ghost or something. They were terrified by the help that was coming to them in Christ. And oftentimes our wicked, one-dimensional hearts cause us to push God away when He comes in a way that we don't expect. We expect Him to show up in the little plan we have devised in our mind in, in this, this way, and yet He shows up in the back door and takes us totally by surprise. And here it is, Christ working in and through something or someone, and then because of fear we resist. Ways we don't expect. Now, remember, Jesus has provided reminders of them, reminders to them of his supernatural ability. Remember they picked up those 12 baskets just hours prior to this? Now, where are they is what I'd like to know. You know that they had to be in the boat. If they get in the boat, they were taken with them. You know, hey man, this is food. We're doing ministry. And if you remember, prior to that, there were so many people pressing upon them, they didn't even have time to eat. They had no time to eat for the sake of doing the work of the ministry. So if Jesus provided these leftovers, you know they're taking the doggy bags on the boat. So there would have been baskets of the supernatural power of God right there in their face. And then they, just like us, forget, don't we? We forget. So he has to stir up a storm to bring us to a new level of belief, a new depth of trust. That's what he does. They were shocked when supernatural help came. You know, sometimes the supernatural help of God will come 
in ways we least expect, perhaps through a lost job. Things we've been praying about, things we've been travailing over. And you lose your job. And he's got something so much grander you couldn't even imagine. Or he brings help through the agent of an associate or a friend. And you've always looked at yourself better than this individual. God bring this individual into your life. You've always looked down your nose at this person. And here God is to restore you, to help you, to assist you through this person. How humbling is that, amen? Very humbling. He's in the business of humility. If God lowered himself to become a man, what do you think he's going to do with us? We're mere men. He was God who became a man. And he's going to conform us to his image. He went to the cross. He tells us to take it up. If you're going to be my disciple, take up your cross at least monthly, semi-annually, no, what did he say? Daily. And follow me. But how quickly we forget his track record, amen? Jam after jam, trial after trial, storm after storm. So he comes in a new way. He comes in a new way. And then he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Now for Jesus, it was enough to simply announce his presence. This is me, I'm here, don't fear. Pretty simple. Now if you remember, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness to ease his own hunger after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by Satan himself, he says, if you are the Son of God, turn these bread, this stones into bread. What did Jesus reply with? No, it is written, right? He would not do it then when he was facing that hunger, but he would multiply five little loaves and two fish for a multitude of people, most of which weren't even believers. He was also tempted to jump off the pinnacle of the temple to prove that he was the Son of God. And then Satan misquotes Scripture. He twists Scripture. But he wouldn't do it. He had nothing to prove. He had to do no supernatural feat to prove who he was at the temptation of Satan, but he walked on the water to come to his own. God's presence is all we need. And we should expect it. As, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children saved by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we should expect his presence in our lives. Amen? Although not in a way that we would necessarily expect it. This is part of walking by what? Faith. Now we know from Matthew's account that after this occurred, Peter asked Jesus if he could come out onto the water. Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. Command me to come unto you. Remember that? Come on. He says, come on. Peter's wanting to be with Christ. Peter always wanted to be with Christ. Peter was always pressing in on Christ. He wanted to be right there. And if you've watched enough episodes of the Three Stooges, every time Mo stopped, Larry and Curly would hit their heads on the back of Mo, right? That's kind of like Peter, always one step behind Jesus, wanting to be in the presence of Christ. He loved the Lord. A man full of faults, just like you. A man full of faults, just like me. Woman of fault. Men and women full of faults. That was Peter. What a great example. What a man of God. He loved Christ. True disciples of Christ, here's another characteristic. They want to be with Jesus. 
They want to be in His presence. They want to seek Him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you seek Him? You want to be with Him? And you say you love Him? So these kind of trials and continual faithfulness of Christ to meet us in the midst of them leads us to point number five. And that's into a more confident trust and deeper worship of Christ. You know, the thing with Peter, you've heard plenty of sermons about Peter, you know, he lacked faith, he got out, he stepped out in the water, he was looking at Jesus, and he looked at the storms of life, and he started to go under, right? Okay, that's true, and there's a lot of great sermons like that. But more than anything else, more than it being a matter of faith with Peter, more than that, this was a desire to be with Jesus. After Jesus died and rose, they're out fishing. He goes back to fishing, you know, he's pulling his hair out. What, what is all this? Jesus is broiling some fish on the shore. Little children, have you caught anything? No, we've been out all night. Throw the nets on the other side for a great catch. And they catch 153 fish, remember? What did they say? It's the Lord. So being naked or half naked, he brilliantly puts his clothes on, jumps into the water and goes to Jesus. He wanted to be with Jesus. He loved Jesus. True Christians want to be with Jesus. And that leads us to a more confident trust, deeper worship. Verse 21. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Now all the times the all, all the time the disciples struggled, Jesus was watching over them. He watches over us all the time. He intercedes on our behalf. That's a promise. Even when he seems distant. Though he may seem distant in the midst of your trial, he's there, intimately involved in conforming you to his image. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was monitoring their progress across the lake. He saw them straining at rowing. Nevertheless, he let them work for it. Work at it for a time. And then he comes. So this trial, now think about this, this trial is actually proof that they had grown with a greater confidence in Christ because this is not the first storm that they had been in. Prior to this, they were in a storm and Jesus was on the boat. A great storm is stirred up. Waves are coming in and being stirred about. Jesus is down taking a nap. They're concerned, we're going to perish. Lord, do you not, are you not concerned that we're going to perish in this storm? Remember that? Jesus gets up. Matthew chapter 8, verse 26, Then He arose and rebuked the winds in the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled. Look at what they said. Pay attention to this. Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey Him? Notice that response. Who can this be? After the incident in John 6, we read in Matthew's account, chapter 14, verse 33, Those in the boat worshipped Him, saying... Truly, this is the Son of God. First storm, who can this be? Next storm, this is the Son of God. There was a confidence having been through a trial before. There was a confidence built up and a trust that had deepened because of the storm. God's in sovereign control of your life, just like He was in sovereign control of their lives. So what does this reveal to the disciples? It, it, it reveals weakness, wretchedness, humility, insufficiency, and utter dependence upon Christ. That should be our lives. 
helpless without Him. Don't walk in your own strength. So what, what does this show? It shows that they had grown in, in a greater proper knowledge of Jesus Christ. And why do we come to church together as the saints? To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as revealed through Scripture. Growing in the, in the person, in the power of Christ. So from the time of the last storm, they grew. And notice, Jesus accepts the worship. He didn't rebuke them. Oh, don't bow down before me. Proving again that He is God incarnate. Only God receives worship if they proclaim that God is so great. In other words, Jesus wasn't some angel. He wasn't some great prophet that, that was here to glorify God and never received worship. Now, we, we can go, speaking of that, in, in Revelation 22, Jesus gives the glorious revelation to John, and in chapter 22, beginning in verse 6, and He says, Then He said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent His angel to show His servants the things which must shortly take place. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is He who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard, when I saw these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And then He said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. They were worshiping God. Jesus is God. Always has been God. He was God in the flesh here. He always will be God. The only way to the Father. The only way. So this growing confidence and trust led to a deeper worship of Christ. When you go through things like this, you grow in confidence that He is faithful, that He is true, and it deepens your worship of Christ. Because you've grown through a greater knowledge of Christ. Through these trials. Psalm 107, verse 29. Ryan read from it this morning. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. And then they are glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. Now, whether this was an, another miracle, they received Him in the boat, and immediately the boat was on the land. Now, whether that was a miracle, and boom, they were just there, or whether it's the timeless presence of Jesus Christ in your life, and time just flies by, I don't know. But they were immediately there. And when you walk with Christ this closely, and you grow in intimacy, and He grows in intimacy with you, time just flies on by, doesn't it? Immediately he did this. And then you look back at trials and you go, wow, then it was the 11th hour and he's not showing up. When we get down the road of faith a while, we look back and go, man, I was going through this, this, and this, and then immediately Christ showed up. Spiritual hindsight's 2022. So the disciples were in this uncomfortable place because Jesus told them to go. Go. And we're going to face trials. Anytime you set out to do what Jesus Christ tells you to do, according to the command and will of God through Scripture, you will face trials. It's a guarantee. I guarantee it. You heard those guys? Who's that? I guarantee it. Well, I guarantee it. And never be deceived to this. Never be deceived by thinking 
that because you're right with God, that life is just easy. It can become that much more difficult as far as facing opposition goes. Look at the life of Paul. There was a man who was in the center of the will of God. And there's no man on this earth that ever faced opposition and torment like that man did outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I believe. No man. The disciples had just seen Jesus turn down an offer to be king. He was king. He's king of kings, Lord of lords, regardless of man's selfish, superficial, false worship. And he told his true disciples to begin to do a boat, and they went. So in spite of that, Jesus came to them, full of majesty, full of power, reminding them that he is still in sovereign control of all things, including storms, trials, tribulations, going into the dark, per his command. Jesus is not going to receive some king's throne based on popular opinion. Period. It doesn't matter what all these big world ministries say about how great Jesus is and He's the provider of your every little intimate desire in the world. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Jesus is king regardless of what they say. He's king. And it may come through much despair that you come to realize that or I come to realize that, but He is king and He is Lord. It's not about how much money you have or how easy things are. He is king of kings. And again, as I close, Psalm 107, 32. But he guides his own to their desired haven. What's that desired haven? You know I see this desired haven as? A deeper, richer relationship with the living God of the universe to the child that's saved by grace. Through trials, which lead to a deeper trust, greater growth, richer assurance, and a worship that is selfless and Christ-centered. They loved the Lord. And they grew in a deeper, richer adoration of Him because of His faithfulness and His omnipotent, sovereign grace in their lives and through their lives. Amen? Now, for those of you who are in Christ, you understand these things and you're continue, continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You may sit here today and say, well, that all sounds really great and stuff, but... I don't know God like this. I know about Him. I know the story of Jesus walking on the water. I know the story about the cross. I know the story that He supposedly literally died and rose from the dead. He claimed to be God in the flesh. If you don't know Him, you have to start by believing in the authority of the Scripture. Everything that it declares them, this is the living word of God. The Psalms say that he's exalted his word to that of his own name. He is the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the word. You must believe in the authority of scripture. You must understand that you're a helpless sinner in a boat without a sail being thrown about the sea. You can't save yourself. You will never save yourself. There will never be enough good in your life that you can do to outweigh the bad that you've done. And I tell you what the bad is. It's not what you've done. Bad is what you haven't done. 
And what you haven't done is lived a perfect, sinless life. The reason you sin is because you're a sinner. You're born a sinner. You need the saving, forgiving grace of God provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. You must believe in the authority of Scripture. Second, you must believe that Jesus Christ is able to do what you cannot do and you can't save yourself. You must bow before Him, confess to Him that you're a sinner, repent, which means to have a change of thinking. You must turn and go the other way and that is towards Christ. You turn from your sin, you take yourself off the throne, you go towards Christ and you bow in humble submission. And then finally, you must commit yourself to Christ and Christ alone. To place yourself in His hands. You must admit your sins. Believe that He's able to save you. Commit your life to His keeping. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart. I'm not talking superficial belief like the masses. I'm talking a belief that submits oneself to the authority of Jesus Christ, ye shall be saved. The invitation goes out. It must be between you and the master of the universe. Because there's nothing or any magical potion or any act that you do that gets you saved. It's the grace of God and your response to His grace and the cross right here, right now. And you can bow before Him and open your heart to Him in response to the work that He's doing in you right now. I bid you to come in your heart before Christ as we stand and as we bow and as we pray. Mighty Father, come together this morning as sinners saved by grace. Your church, your people, covered by the blood of Christ, redeemed, bought back at a great price. Lord, we know that grace is not cheap. Graced by your goodness, by your love. I pray that you bless your dear people here this morning to be built up in the faith, to come to a deeper, richer understanding of your person and the intimate favor that they have because of what you've already accomplished on the cross. I pray for those here this morning who are in the midst of darkness, who are in the midst of a turbulent storm, who seem to be at the eleventh hour of despair. May you bring them into the place of your presence, of your rescuing love and grace, which will lead them and all of us into a deeper, richer understanding of who you are, who we are in you, which will produce in us and come out of us a greater adoration and worship of you. Father, for those who sit here this morning who are being convicted to the core because they have been, it has been revealed to them by your Holy Spirit that they're not yours. Lord, I pray that you would compel them, that you would draw them, that you would break them, that you would grace them with your presence, that they would cry out to you this morning in repentance ask you to take control of their life as you divinely operate to work into them the salvation that you provide. 
And that that grace will be revealed as they work out that salvation in fear and trembling, bearing fruit of someone who has the resident love and power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Please save them this morning, we pray. In the mighty name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. If this morning you called out to Christ to spare you, you want to know Him personally, you cried out to Him in your heart this morning, please come talk to me. And anything I can do to assist you in your new walk with Christ, you let me know. And uh, we'll give you a book to get you going to assist you in that. So you understand what took place this morning by His grace. Amen.